Welcome to Christian Life Academy. We are working our way through, and we are at the very beginning, of the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689, which is our church's uh, statement of faith. Um, we just spent the last uh, several weeks going through an introduction, uh, which really talked about the reason for creeds and confessions. Uh, we actually addressed the objections uh, of those who would be uh, anti-creedal, uh, so why do we have a creed? Why do we have a confession? Uh, we talked through those. So if you, if you miss those things, I'm going to review them all right now. No, I'm not doing that. That's our new format. So what you need to do now is listen to those earlier sermon audio broadcasts so that you can catch up and, and hear what those things are. There's not, um, there's not a compelling reason to do that, just if you're interested. Uh, because this, what we're going to get into today with chapter 1 um, and paragraph 1 is really... Um, this is the confession. So now we're starting to go into uh, doctrine. First of all, let's look at this. Uh, you got a handout of this uh, overview of the Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689. You'll see at the end of that, I give the credit to who wrote this. And basically, um, they divided up the confession into these kind of big picture sections and then smaller units within. And uh, you can see Division One is the Foundations of Christian Thought. It's chapters 1 through 8, right? And then what is unit 1? It's the scriptures. 2 and 3 are about God. 4 through 6, the original creation. You can see all the chapters listed right there, right? Creation, providence, sin. Then you see in 7 and 8, God's covenant, Christ's person and work. And then 9 through 20, division 2, experimental religion, salvation applied. And then this is broken down again. The setting is free will the blessings and graces, and you can see it goes through all these chapters. Until you get down to uh, Unit 3, which is the means, God's law, God's gospel. Division 3, then, the divine institutions, liberty of conscience, religious worship, civil government, and marriage. So this is a good overall outline. You don't see this in your confession. Your confession just has the chapters. You know, if you have a paperback copy of it, it just has the chapters. This gives you a better picture of the three major categories um, of our doctrines and, how, and where they kind of fall out. Is there anything scriptural about that? No. It's just a way for you to break it down to understand what it is. Okay? You with me so far? All right. Uh, sorry, didn't go through the rest. Unify the church. Then division four is the world to come, the, uh, the intermediate and resurrection states and the final judgment, which, of course, we talked about not too long ago. And we'll talk about it again sometime in 2035. Any rate, so, no. This is the credit here on the bottom, Pastor Greg Nichols, um, and Sam Waldron's the one that printed that. So, at any rate, that's an overview of the Baptist Confession of Faith. Okay, so let's start now with the preface. Now, some of your copies of the confession may not include the preface. The preface uh, was published with the confession um, in 1689. It is not officially part of the confession, but many paperback copies do include it. Uh, and I think I mentioned last week that if you had that, you should read that along with paragraph one. If you didn't, that's okay, because we're going to read it right now. All right. Courteous reader, it is now many years since diverse of us with other sober Christians then living and walking in the way of the Lord that we profess did conceive ourselves to be under a necessity of publishing a confession. Now, this is a reference back, by the way, to the original confession. But let's keep going of our faith for the information and satisfaction of those that did not thoroughly understand what our principles were 
or had entertained prejudices against our profession by reason of the strange representation of them by some men of note who had taken very wrong measures and accordingly led others into misapprehension of us and them. And this was first put forth about the year 1643 in the name of seven congregations then gathered in London. All right, so there's a lot of very subtle statements here, just so you get an idea of the history of this. What they're referring to, and this is what I mentioned, the first London Baptist Confession wasn't titled that, the first, because it was the first. You know, you don't call, you know, if I had, if I had named a son Brian Scott Irvin Jr., it wouldn't be because I was named Brian Scott Irvin the first. Are you with me? I, I could become Brian Scott Irvin, but more, if, no, we, we would say senior probably today, right? But if I had three generations, then probably I would be, okay, this is way off the, Reservation. Let's go back. All right. So they're talking about 1643. It was the first time. And what they're talking about is, is that since that was published, which was, if you recall me talking about this, was a much smaller version, almost an abridged version of the confession that we have today. Much smaller. It predated um, the Westminster, Savoy, etc. But what happened is, is when the Westminster and the Savoy were written, the Baptists believed that they needed to specify or clarify some of their positions, particularly on government, particularly on government. And the reason was the Anabaptists. It was the Anabaptists. So you see here they're talking about we're under the necessity of publishing a confession of our faith for the information and satisfaction of those that did not thoroughly understand what our principles were. So there were other believers, and this is what it's talking about in the very beginning, uh, not Baptists, Presbyterians, etc., who thought that all Baptists, and if you drew a line then it would be particular Baptists versus Anabaptists, that they held the same view. And Anabaptists were almost, without going too far down that path, almost anarchy, right? Almost anarchy, completely re- uh, rebellious to government, ready to go take down the government. And the Baptists said, well, no, no, no. This is somebody that's gone the wrong way. That's not what we believe. We believe Romans is correct. Paul is actually an apostle. It's the word of God. And that means that we should submit to the higher powers. So, because some of these people didn't understand, they had a prejudice against our profession. By strange representation of them, by some men of note who had taken wrong measures. That's what, he, that's what they're talking about there. They're talking about the Anabaptists went the wrong way, and so... We want to make sure everybody understands the real deal. Notice something completely different than what you see in our polarized world today. They didn't call them out, did they? They didn't say, you know, the Anabaptists, those dirty scoundrels. Are you with me on this? In other words, even in their introduction, they're gracious to who they have ought with. Second congregations gathered in London, goes here. This is a very long preface, so I have to. Since which time, diverse impressions thereof have been dispersed abroad, and our, and our end proposed in good measure answered, insomuch as many, and some of those men eminent both for piety and learning, were thereby satisfied that we were no way guilty of those heterodoxies and fundamental errors which had too frequently been charged upon us without ground or occasion given on our part. So this is why we did this, and even in the beginning here, we know that the people that are looking at this are getting a better understanding of what we believe. 
And for as much as that confession is now commonly to be had, and also that many others since embrace the same truth which is owned therein, it was, judge, it was judged necessary by us to join together in giving a testimony to the world of our affirming adhering to those wholesome principles by the publication of this which is now in your hand. Now, which confession are they talking about here? They're talking about the Westminster. The Westminster Confession had been published, and that clarified a whole bunch of doctrinal positions. And what they're saying is, is that we need to embrace, many have embraced this, so we need to join together in giving a testimony of the wholesome principles by this publication. In other words, we're going to back up what those other confessions say because we're going to publish our own, and guess what? Most of it's going to be exactly the same. It's going to be exactly the same. And for as much as our method and manner of expressing our sentiments in this doth vary from the former, although the substance of this matter is the same, they're talking about the 1643, we shall freely impart to you the reason and occasion thereof. One thing that greatly prevailed with us to undertake this work was not only to give a full account of ourselves to those Christians that differ from us about the subject of baptism, but also the profit that might from thence arise unto those that have any account of our labors in their instruction and establishment in the great truths of the gospel in the clear understanding and steady belief of which are comfortable walking with God. Pause for a second there, it continues on. But what they're saying is, look, this is important for us to do this, not only so that others understand what we believe, and we show our clear differentiation because we're Baptists, but so that we can use this for teaching. And fruitfulness before him in all our ways is most nearly concerned. And therefore, we did conclude it necessary to express ourselves the more fully and distinctly and also to fix on such a method as might be most comprehensive of those things we des design to explain our sense and belief of. And finding no defect in this regard, in that fixed on by the assembly, they're talking about the Westminster Assembly, not finding any problem in the way they did it, making this big long confession, and after them by those of the congregational way, that's the Savoy Declaration, Congregationalists, we did readily conclude it best to retain the same order of our in our present Confession. In other words, they're saying it made sense for us to keep the same order as they both did so that everybody could understand. So you can see there's multiple references here to the earlier confessions. Always in a good way. We made ours like theirs. That was good. <laughs> That's also different, isn't it? <laughs> well, we have those... <laughs> Those guys, we have a good confession. No, it's not. It's like you know they did really good on this, so we just made ours like theirs. That's what they're saying. And also, when we observe that those last mentioned did in their confessions, for reasons which seemed of weight both to themselves and others, choose not only to express their mind in words concurrent with the former, in sense concerning all those articles wherein they were agreed, but also for the most part without any variation of the terms. Pause for a second. What are they talking about? that these confessions, in their language, agreed with the former. What are they referring to? They're referring to the Baptist Confession of 1643. The Westminster and the Savoy used whole portions of the original Baptist Confession of 1643 in their confession, as if they started with that and then reworked it from there. They're recognizing and stating that this is even that much better. They, we had one. They based their stuff on it. They did a better job. We're going to copy what they did now. You see this? 
but for also for the most part without any variation of the terms, we did in like manner conclude it best to follow their example in making use of the very same words with them both in these articles, which are very many, wherein our faith and doctrine are the same with theirs. And this we did the more abundantly to manifest our consent with both in all the fundamental articles of the Christian religion, as also with many other whose orthodox confessions have been published to the world on the behalf of the Protestant and diverse nations and cities. Were there other confessions? Yes, there were. Other nations, other places. We're dealing with England. This is where we see the Baptist Confession written. That's where the Westminster and the Savoy came from. But they are referring to the fact that there are other confessions. Are they largely based on the same thing? Actually, they are. But what they're basically saying is here, look, it made sense to us to do this so that we could show our unity as believers. We could show our unity as believers. Our adoption of the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689 does that too. We are saying, look, our brothers and sisters in the congregational churches, our brothers and sisters in the Presbyterian churches are our brothers and sisters. We do not say they're not believers, we can't be around them or fellowship with them or nothing. We're not saying that at all, we're saying the opposite. The majority of the confession is word for word the same in all three confessions. Our confession and those two other confessions are word for word the same. In fact, if you've been through it, you've seen it, there are, I usually, I'll be pointing out where the differences are because there's so few. I'll be pointing those out as we go. Obviously, the chapter of baptism is different, right? You with me on this? The relationship between the civil government and the church government is different from the original Westminster. Interestingly enough, when the American Presbyterians in the 1790s adopted their own version of the Westminster, they copied the Baptist Confession for their wording. You with me on this? An interchange. And also to convince all that we have no itch to clog religion with new words. (laughs) They have no itch to clog religion with new words, but do readily acquiesce in that form of sound words which has been in consent with the Holy Scriptures used by others before us, hereby declaring before God, angels and men, our hearty agreement with them in that wholesome Protestant doctrine which, with so clear evidence of Scriptures, they have asserted. Some things indeed are in some places added, some terms omitted, and some few changed. But these alterations are of the nature as that we need not doubt any change or suspicion of unsoundness in the faith from any of our brethren upon the account of them. So we have made some changes, but it's not because we don't think that they they have a sound faith. We just thought there were some things we needed to change because we believe different. Or, in some cases, you'll see them. I'll point them out. There's a few places where they changed things because they had already begun to be misinterpreted. So people started misinterpreting what the Westminster said. They started misinterpreting what the Savoy Declaration said. And so we fixed it. By the way, so did the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. They just did it in subsequent documents, not in the Confession itself. Are you with me on that? When the American Presbyterians actually created their document, they did fix those things in their document. In those things wherein we differ from others, we have expressed ourselves with all candor and plainness, that none might entertain jealousy of aught secretly lodged in our breasts, that we would not the world should be acquainted with. Not, yeah. Yet we hope we have also observed those rules of modesty and humility, as will render our freedom in this respect inoffensive, 
even to those whose sentiments are different from ours. In other words, we hope we haven't offended them. We're not trying to offend them. We hope we don't offend them. We're not pointing, and you'll see as we go through, we talk about like baptism. We're gonna make, they're going to make the case in the confession of why we believe baptism is what it is. But it's not by saying those guys are wrong. Are you with me on that? It's not by saying they're wrong. It's like, here, here's what we believe. Here's why we believe it. Do you have to go down the path of why infant baptism is bad if you say baptism is for those who have confessed belief? No. Do you? A baby hasn't professed belief. So you don't have to explain that, do you? You just say what you think. Everybody with me? Okay. We have also taken care to affix texts of Scripture at the bottom for the confirmation of each article in our confession, in which work we have studiously endeavored to select such as are most clear and pertinent for the proof of what is asserted by us. Pause. Westminster and Savoy did not include footnotes. Now, you'll see modern printings and modern downloads that do have footnotes, but they didn't originally. The Baptists added those because they wanted to help the reader understand where these concepts come from in the Scripture. It is not exhaustive by any stretch. That's why we often have other Scriptures that we add in. And sometimes you'll read and you'll be like, why didn't they use this passage? It says it's so much clearer. I don't know. Go back in time, ask them, ask them when you get to heaven, if you think of it. Uh, uh, I don't know why, because sometimes it seems so obvious, but usually it's because of this. They're actually just trying to show a proof text that references one specific aspect of what they're trying to point out in the confession. And our earnest desire is that all into whose hands this may come would follow that, never enough commended, example of the noble Bereans who search the scriptures daily that they might find out whether the things preached to them were so or not. So what are they saying? What you should do is every day be looking at the scriptures and studying these things. So how do you want, how do you want to, if you say, well, you know what, I'm not sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stump the dummy here, and I'm going to get Brian on this point when he gets to it in the confession. I'm going to come and get him. You ever heard of stump the dummy? Yeah. So that, that's probably actually offensive to somebody. Dummies. Anyway, uh, no, that's not what you're to do. The Bereans didn't stand up in the service and point out something that was wrong. They searched the scripture daily and looked to see if the things were true. With me? All right. There is one more thing which we sincerely profess and earnestly desire credence in, viz. that contention is most remote from our design in all that we have done in this matter. And we hope that, so contention is most remote from our design, so they're purposefully trying not to have contention with other denominations, we hope that the liberty of an ingenious unfolding our principles and opening our hearts unto our brethren with the scripture grounds of our faith and practice will by none of them be either denied to us or taken ill from us. Our whole design is accomplished if we may have attained this justice as to be measured in our principles and practice and the judgment of both by others according to what we have now published which the Lord whose eyes are a flame of fire know it to be the doctrine which with our hearts we most firmly believe and sincerely endeavor to conform our lives to. And know that, other contentions being laid asleep, the only care and contention of all upon whom the name of our blessed Redeemer is called might for the, further, for the future be to walk humbly with their God in the exercise of all love and meekness toward each other, 
to perfect holiness and the fear of the Lord, each one endeavoring to have his conversation, such as becometh the gospel. Pause. This is a long sentence right here. This is a long sentence. But you see what they're saying. They're so strongly trying to make the point that they don't want to offend anybody. That this confession was not written in order to argue with somebody. Right? It was written so that everybody could understand, and we didn't wish any ill will toward anyone else by publishing it. That's pretty significant. Don't see that too often today. And also suitable to his place and capacity vigorously to promote in others the practice of true religion and undefiled in the sight of God our Father. And that in this backsliding day we might not spend our breath in fruitless complaints of the evils of others, but may everyone begin at home to reform in the first place our own hearts and ways, and then to quicken all that we may have influence upon to the same work, that if the will of God were so, none might deceive themselves by resting in and trusting to a form of godliness without the power of it, and inward experience of the efficacy of those truths that are professed by them, so be it. Lord, this is where we need to be. What, what are they saying? They're saying, look, we shouldn't spend our days in fruitless complaints. I don't care how much you don't like what's happening in Washington and Lansing, you're not changing it by complaining. You're not. And the fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter. Is this the guy who used to teach the Constitution? Yes! Because you're not here to reform the government. You're not here to make sure that we're getting the right amount of taxes, that the government is spending the money the right way. There's lots of lost people who can worry about that. And I would have to say, they're not doing a real good job. Are they? Because things are run amok. They're bad. That's not what our focus should be. Our focus should be on spending time reforming our own selves first. Then sharing that with others. What is important is what's in here, not what's out there. Get what's here first right. Then help others. Make disciples. Is this not the Great Commission? It is. And verily there... It's a long preface. And verily there is one spring and cause of the decay of religion in our day which we cannot but touch upon and earnestly urge a redress of, and that is the neglect of the worship of God in families by those to whom the charge and conduct of them is committed. May not the gross ignorance and instability of many, with the profaneness of others, be justly charged upon their parents and masters, who have not trained them up in the way wherein they ought to walk when they were young, but have neglected those frequent and solemn commands which the Lord hath laid upon us, so to catechize and instruct them that their tender years might be seasoned with the knowledge of the truth of God as revealed in the Scriptures, and also by their own omission of prayer and other duties of religion to their other families, together, with the ill example of their loose conversation, having inured them first to a neglect and the contempt of all piety and religion, we know this will not excuse the blindness and wickedness of any, but certainly it will fall heavy upon those that have been thus the occasion thereof. They indeed die in their sins, but will not their blood be required of those under whose care they were, yet who yet permitted them to go on without warning? Yea, led them into the paths of destruction, 
And will not the diligence of Christians with respect to the discharge of these duties in ages past rise up in judgment against and condemn many of those who would be esteemed such now? What are they saying? They're saying, look, we're going to write this really long sentence and paragraph again, another one. We're going to point out the fact that one of the problems that we have that we need to address, we need to redress it, we need to get this out there, is that parents aren't training their children. Parents aren't training their children. Now, before we get too far down this path, let me just tell you my personal view on this. It does not have anything to do with having a worship time at home. It could be part of that, but it's much deeper and broader than that. When are parents to train their children? At 7 p.m. every evening? When they sit down for dinner? Is that what the scriptures say? I think they say when you rise up, when you walk in the way, and when you lay down. What's that equal all day? The only thing you don't get is osmosis while you're sleeping. All day. That's how the parents are to be training their children. You want to include a worship service formally at home to do this? Do it. Great. Focused. Important. Shows those things. But what's important is, is that that's not the only time. Look, if you say we're going to have a half-hour worship service and the rest of the day has nothing to do with God, you think your kids don't pick up the hypocrisy of that? They do. It has to be what you're living and what you're teaching them. And if parents don't train their children, it's going to be ill for them. In fact, what they're pointing out is that don't you think those people that don't do that are going to get in trouble with those who did? They don't say where that's going to happen. I think I know where. They're suggesting heaven. That's what they're suggesting. Well, that won't happen in heaven because there's no tears. There's no tears. Does the scripture say there's no regret? Does the scripture say there's no regret in heaven? Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that. Don't believe the Hallmark movie of the week. <laughs> that's, no, that's no slant on Hallmark movies. <laughs> I'll get in trouble. Alright, we shall conclude with our earnest prayer that the God of all grace will pour out those measures of his Holy Spirit upon us, that the profession of truth may be accompanied with the sound belief and diligent practice of it by us, that his name may in all things be glorified through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's a preface right there. That is a preface. Powerful. Alright, without beating that up anymore because that was long to begin with. Let's get right into paragraph 1 of chapter 1 of the Holy Scriptures. If you didn't already get it, two pieces of paper on the front table right here. Outline of the chapter and outline of the confession. Okay, so we're going to read the whole paragraph and then obviously uh, we're going to break it down. This is a, a bigger paragraph. And uh, so we will break it down as we go. All right. I'm trying to think if I want to give you kind of an introduction here before or after the paragraph. Let's do it after. The Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God, as to leave men inexcusable, 
yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself and declare that His will unto His church, and afterward for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same holy into writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now completed. Okay, big paragraph. Don't worry, we're going to break it down. All right, so first is the necessity of Scriptures. Paragraph 1 starts with, the Holy Scripture is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Now that's a compound statement if there ever was one right there. That is a biggie. So the sphere of its necessity, if we look at it this way, we break it down according to the outline, is all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. In other words, the Holy Scripture, or righteous word of God, what is Holy Scripture? What's holy? Righteous. What is the Scripture? What God wrote, what he, basically, what he wrote through men, right? Through the working of the Holy Spirit and inspiration, is the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rules a rule means that no works of man are enough, nor are they unquestionably perfect and correct. Man's works can be right, but they can also be wrong. Only Scripture is entirely and unquestionably right. You with me so far? The Scriptures are sufficient for all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. They are not sufficient or contain enough knowledge for all aspects of life. All right, so they're narrowing it down. That's the sphere. Although there are truths that they contained about all areas of life, the scriptures are not a cookbook. They're not, this is just some, you know, I picked these. They're not a star map or any other all-encompassing guide. They speak to the gospel, to the metaphysical, and how we're to live life. You with me on this? We do not claim nor do the scriptures, that the scripture teaches everything about everything. But I think you could argue that the scripture teaches everything about what you really need to know, which is the metaphysical, or the spiritual. The scriptures are the infallible rule, they are the standard, they are the standard in these areas. Any works of man must be held up against or compared to the holy scriptures to test their correctness. Now, footnote, of course, we're not going to read through the scriptures and this, this go-around of the confession. The footnote is the scriptures that apply to this, 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 17, Isaiah 8, 20, Luke 16, 19 and 30, 29 and 31, and Ephesians 2, 20. Now, all right, now let me give you the preface. There is nothing more important in this class than this chapter. There is nothing more important. Your understanding of the importance and relevance of the Scripture is foundational to what you believe. What you believe about Jesus Christ is based on what? The Scripture. What you believe about God is based on the Scripture. What you believe about creation is based on the Scripture. What you believe about the afterlife is based on the Scripture. If you believe those things, it's got to be based on the Scripture. Now let me just say this. 
Give me a little latitude in this. Atheists have their own scripture. They have their own scripture. And it's not the atheist Bible. Although there are some works like that. But they have something that they believe on, don't they? It's themselves. They believe on what they believe. Now, how many atheists have experienced the afterlife? None. None. What do they base their beliefs on? It's their opinion. It's their opinion. And guess what? If you elevate your opinion to the same level as God, you're saying you're God. This is why it's so important for us to understand why we believe what we believe. That's the purpose of this class. Why do we believe what we believe? It's because of the Scripture. And if we say we believe something that's not in the Scripture, whoa! Now say it's your opinion. Say, personally, I believe. That's a good way to do it. Right? It's humble. It's a good way. That's why the Scriptures are so important. Because they state what we believe. Now look. I think when I was teaching the Constitution, a lot of people really enjoyed the class because they get through, when we get through the Constitution, it finally clicked. They finally saw in their mind how all this was supposed to work together and why it made so much sense. Are we far away from that today? Yes, and we pointed that out. But the point is, is that it all clicks. It's like, wow, okay, that's why it works this way. This is the same. This is more than the same. This is truth. So as we go through this chapter, we work our, it's going to take some time, but as we work our way through this chapter, I'm going to be showing you all the attempts to make this go awry. Look, it doesn't take much remembering to think about the fact that the very first sin was committed after God's word was questioned. Hath God said? Remember this? The serpent speaking to Eve in the garden questioned God's word. Satan is smart. And he knows that if he can get us to not hear and believe God's word is truth, he can keep us in sin. He can keep others in sin. And when you look at it from that perspective, you can see why all of these things that the church has dealt with, church has dealt with for 2,000 years regarding the canon of Scripture and the accuracy of the translations makes such an important issue. Look, if I can take a Greek manuscript, let's, let's just say, I take a Greek manuscript, and it's as far back as we can get, right? The original Greek manuscripts, we're going to talk about it, but the original Greek manuscripts, the actual autographs, that's what they're called. The autograph is the thing that the actual apostle wrote, the original, so to speak. That's, so the Declaration of Independence at, at the National Archives, that's the autograph. It's the original. They did actually autograph it, which is kind of a, anyway. 
The autographed copies are gone. We don't have them. Why? They're written on a material that couldn't survive. That's why. Now, you take a copy of the original scripture, the autograph, you put it in a clay jar in a very dry climate where there's a perfect balance of humidity and heat, think Dead Sea Scrolls, you can preserve it. But if you pass that thing around from church to church to church, and you have a bunch of guys over time that copy all that, they're handling it, they're copying it, it's going to fall apart. It's going to fall apart. We don't have them anymore. We don't have them anymore. By the way, you ever heard of Plato? Socrates? Some of Plato's works, we have, there's two copies. Two exist. Period. But we, we think Plato wrote it. Isn't that amazing? 7,000 parts of Scripture. Some as early as the first century. Fragments, parts. And yet, that's questioned? That was a freebie. But you understand what I'm saying. I hope. The importance of Scripture cannot be overstated. You should question what translation you have. You should question what translation you hear somebody preach from. Why? It's important. Do you have the word of God, or do you have a word that Satan is using to try to dissuade you? Because there's a huge number of translations today that do just that. A huge number. We're going to go through them. We're going to talk about them. But the scriptures, relevance and important for us, can't be overstated. When it says this in the confession about the scripture, that's because it's so important it's true. This is the very first statement. We can't talk about God. Did God exist before the scripture? Yes. We can't talk about God until we talk about where we get the information from. That's the scripture. If you don't believe this part, you've got a problem with everything else. Now, does it just come from the scripture? Your faith, your belief. No, it doesn't. So I'm going to go ahead and answer it that way, but now we'll get to when I'm going to give you a complete answer on it. Okay. All right. So the paragraph continues. All, and here we go. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give them that knowledge of God and his will which is necessary unto salvation. Okay, so, the grounds of this necessity. Why do we have to have the scripture? What are the grounds of it? Because of the insufficiency of general revelation. Now, this does not use the words general revelation, but it does use these words. The light of nature is the revelation that man has in his created being. He has a limited illumination of God. Multiple scriptures that state this, Old and New Testament, and basically they say is, is that man in his heart knows there's a God. He may not know about Jesus, but he knows there's a God. This is why we can go to some you know, tribe or people group that's in some remote area, as far as we know, never had contact with any others as far back as they know, and yet they still believe in a spirit, the great spirit. Although it is interesting that Many of them must have had some contact because 
almost overwhelmingly all of them have some knowledge about a flood. Isn't that interesting? Where do you think that came from? Well, they do live on an island. I'm not talking about just the ones on the island. The works of creation. So we have the light of nature, works of creation. The works of creation and providence refer to God's direct interaction in our temporal existence, in other words, in our world, which is observed by men. So this is a reference to things like where man can look to the stars, the scriptures say, can look to the sky and know there's a God. Look at the grandeur of creation and know there's a God in your heart. <laughs> in man's heart, he doesn't believe it's random chance. That's, that's, that's not the way that it works. So this is pointing out that although these things do exist, and because of that, man is inexcusable. Now these two aspects of God's revelation, these two aspects, these two aspects, in other words, that which God has worked physically and that which is in our hearts, together are called general revelation. So we refer to it as general revelation. Right? General revelation because it's common to all men. Everyone has general revelation. What general revelation does do, here's what it does. It does manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. In other words, man knows that there is a God and that he should do no wrong, not do wrong. He knows this. What general revelation cannot do, it is not sufficient to give that knowledge which is necessary unto salvation. The scriptures are needed to clarify what general revelation cannot teach due to the fallen nature of mankind. So, the scriptures are necessary because that explains things to us better. That's kind of the... They used much more elegant words than me saying. The scriptures are needed because they explain things. Here's the references for this. Again, footnotes in the confession. We're not going to read through them because of the time. Romans 1, 19 and 21. Romans 2, 14 and 15. And Psalm 19, 1 to 3. So if you're listening to this on Sermon Audio, again, I'd encourage you to get a copy of the confession to read the scripture references so that you get some direct, direct understanding of what we're talking about and confirmation that the things that the confession says are true. All right. So the paragraph continues. Therefore, it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diversified banners to reveal himself and to declare that his will, declare his will unto his church. Redemptive revelation, that's what this is called, redemptive revelation. It's the background to inscripturation. So what is redemptive revelation? It's revealed revelation. <laughs> redemptive revelation is revelation. There, that's it, period, no. Redemptive revelation is is revelation which has the purpose to cause our salvation. Hence, it's necessary for salvation. Redemptive revelation is personal. Men have been saved without the scriptures, but not without redemptive revelation. It has to be revealed to them. Hebrews 1.1 talks about that. Let's continue on. And afterward, you know, all of the, everything we're talking about in this paragraph is covered in greater depth in the confession. This is, this is like the introductory paragraph here. 
setting the stage. And afterward, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people being now completed. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about the Scriptures themselves. Why were they needed? Because man couldn't understand everything he needed to understand through general revelation. God revealed himself. Think about all the different times that you see in Scripture where God revealed himself to men. Obviously the greatest example when Christ, when God took on flesh, became Jesus Christ. But all these different times when God spoke through prophets, revealed himself, right? When God spoke directly to individuals, revealed himself. All of those times, God was revealing himself. Now, do we think for a second, and I'm saying a second, so your answer should be really quick on this, that every time God revealed himself to men, it's in the scripture? No. No. When else did he do it? We don't know because it's not in the scripture. Are you with me on that? We don't know because it's not in the scripture. But we don't say that, you know, the only time that God ever revealed himself was there. Look, you have to think, did Adam have some conversations with God? Yeah. One place that we know for sure was who? Who do we know for sure that God walked with and talked with every day? Enoch. Enoch. Right? We don't have those words. As far as we know. There is something today called the Book of Enoch. Have you heard of this? The Book of Enoch. Have you heard of this? Was it written by Enoch in Genesis? No, it was not. It was not. It's a Gnostic Gospel. We'll get to that later. All right. So this is the presupposition of the necessity of Scriptures. Why do we have to have it? Well, first of all, it's period. When did it take place? When did this necessity become real? Well, afterward. That's, that's the bottom line. Afterward. Or after God revealed himself through the prophets and his son. So both methods, both former methods of revelation are completed. The prophets and through his son, his apostles. Right? In other words, if Christ or inspired apostles walk the earth today, the scriptures aren't necessary, at least for those that can hear them. Right? Do you need to have Christ writing stuff down to give it to you, or can you just listen to him? You wouldn't have to have the scriptures if you had Christ right here. But he's not. He's ascended. He's at the throne. So we need to know what he said. Former ways now completed, God no longer reveals himself directly, but instead has revealed himself through the scriptures. Catholics and radical reformers, with their claim to present revelations from the Spirit, deny the necessity of scriptures. Hebrews 1-2. Now keep that in mind. This is important. Someone who says, anyone who says that God revealed something to them is saying the scriptures aren't enough. And you know what they just did? They elevated themselves to God. No, I'm not saying that they're doing that on purpose. They might have had good intentions, but they're wrong. They're wrong. 
Now, here's what you can say. The Spirit illuminated me. See, here's the problem. How much of the Scripture, let's just see if you know this. We haven't got down this path yet. We're going to get to it. The canon of Scripture, coming quick. I don't know if we'll get to it today, but we might. Five minutes, so that's, you know, it's close. How many books of the Bible were determined to be canon based on one person? How many books in our Bible today do we have because one person decided that they are canon? None. You know what that flies in the face of? Hmm? Mormonism. Joseph Smith. Dictated a book into his hat. You can't make it up. Threw two rocks in a hat, put his face in the hat, said what it said, transcribed, you know, he had somebody wrote it down for him. What's the proof? It's the scripture. Because he said so. You see a problem here? Was Joseph Smith a sinner? Yeah. Are you a sinner? Yeah. Was the Apostle Paul a sinner? Yeah, he said so. He doesn't he? Paul didn't decide what was the scripture. Ooh. He didn't decide. He didn't say, oh, this is going to be a good one here. I'm going to write this letter to the Galatians. This is definitely scripture. That's not how it worked. The church determined what was the canon and what was scripture. You know what that means? Anyone else who takes it upon themselves to determine what the scripture is, is violating the scripture. Now there's an art. I'm going to steal my own thunder if I keep going. I'm just going to pause right there, and we'll keep going. Read the thing. All right, it's purposes. What are the purposes of this necessity? Better and more sure shows necessity of written scripture beyond general revelation. In other words, they're a more sure indicator. You can look at the sky and see there's a God. Okay. What's he expect of us? Not quite a hundred percent sure from the sky. Are you with me? Preserving. The salvation of men depends on them having a trustworthy record of redemptive revelation. Certainty about the exact content of the divine revelation was the purpose of the scripture, so that you would know what it takes to be saved. We have to have the scripture so you know. Not, I heard one guy say, welcome to the internet. I heard uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, not a Christian, well-known astrophysicist. And honestly, what he's best known for is objective thinking. (laughs) It's kind of funny because everything you see about him on the web is about astrophysics, black holes, you name it. But his passion is teaching people to think. Not to think like him, or for people to be able to identify objective truth and then apply it to themselves instead of believing whatever they hear. Are we for that? We're for that. I'm with him on that. Here's what he says. 
he says a lot of things. Here's something he said. If your validation for the truth of something is based on a Google search result, you are badly misled. Every search engine has a bias. Every news source has a bias. Because they say it does not make it true. And because enough people say it doesn't make it true. When you believe that somebody says this and so it must be true, or it was posted, had 100 million likes on on Facebook, that does not make it true. Have you ever heard of the Flat Earth Society? Most of the people in the Flat Earth Society are doing it tongue-in-cheek. It's a joke. But not all. Some believe it's true. Everything to do with the curvature of the earth was made up to trick us. It doesn't matter how many of them there are who say that it's true, it doesn't make it true. Are you with me on this? It does not make it true. We need to base our objective truth on God's word. Because we are flawed. We're flawed. We get stuff wrong. If you're honest, you get stuff wrong all the time. Don't think that somehow you can come up with the ultimate truth and you just know that's the way it is. Here's what happens. There are truths that you can see and evidence and know that they're true under circumstances. So you can say, I dropped this remote, it fell to the table. We call that gravity, right? doesn't matter what you call it. Call it Orange Julius, I don't care. Whatever you want to call it. But it is an evidence of gravity. That's what that tells me. Right here, there is an evidence of gravity. It does not tell me if there's the evidence of gravity over there. Although my experience tells me there is, right? It does not tell me if there's an evidence of gravity 25 miles up, because there's not. I can drop this remote 25 miles up in the air, and it floats around. It just actually would stay there. So I can observe it in this situation. But here's what happens. I believe that if I walk to the other end of this row and I drop the remote, it's going to fall. I believe that gravity, evidenced here, I will evidence there. Right? Now somebody else could say, well, I believe if I go 25 miles in the air, I'm going to experience it there. And I'm not going to be able to catch it because it's going to go a long way. Okay. I haven't been out of the atmosphere. Can't say that I really experienced that personally. So I believe what I've been taught. Are you with me on this? You believe what you believe because you believe it. The scripture explains to us things so that we have a more sure belief. It's not just because of the words that are written. There's also an illumination that happens, but I will definitely be stealing my thunder if I go into that direction at this point.
what's the publication? Well, that's better propagating. That's what, the, that's what the confession says. The apostles wrote letters for better publication or propagating or spreading of the truths they taught. Likewise, all the scriptures have been inspired by God so that his revealed word can be better distributed. What would be the point of God inspiring men to write his word and then keeping it a secret? More to the point, this is going to come up. The current majority text hidden for 1,850 years. Hidden. Not out. Not in the church. 1,850 years. See any problems there? How about we just found the Gospel of Thomas? What would be the point of God revealing his will in writing and then keeping it hidden all that time? How many generations is that? Never heard those that revealed truth. It's because it's not the gospel. It's not in the canon. Selection. Inscripturation provided an inspired selection of God's revelation. Everything once revealed is not written, but everything now revealed is written. So everything revealed today is written. Everything revealed in the past is not in there. Right? When the two angels, one believe it, some people believe it might be an appearance of Christ, sat down with Abraham. We don't have that whole conversation. We don't have the conversation that Enoch had. Wouldn't you like to? Those conversations were so good that one day he just took him to heaven. What was the, what did he say the last day? How did that go? I want to find that out eventually. I'd like to know. What did they talk about? How well did Enoch know God? Talk about humble. Yeah? Can you imagine getting that knock on your tent flap? Enoch, you want to take a walk? <laughs> yeah. Footnotes for this section. Proverbs 22, 19 to 21. Romans 15, 4. And 2 Peter 1, 19 and 20. Okay. So we're going to stop there. You can see that next week we start with paragraph 2. So I'm going to tell you that for homework for next week, I would like to suggest that you read paragraphs 2, 3, and 4, and 5. So, 2, 3, and 4 are short. 5 is longer. At least get through 2, 3, and 4. Read the scriptures in 2, 3, and 4. If you have time for 5, knowing me, I'm not going to get to 5. <laughs> so, I think if you do 2, 3, and 4, you'll be perfectly fine. And we'll pick that up next week. Let's close in a word of prayer.